Amen, amen. Hey, good morning, City Light. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Yes, that is my name, and I am under the age of 65. You saw it here. Um, grab your Bible. If you brought it with you, grab a device. I want you to meet me in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We are working our way through a sermon series that is called A Church After God's Own Heart. Our burden in this series is to use selected scriptures throughout the semester, sometimes the parables of Jesus, other times the life of Jesus, and, and other things. Um, we want to be a church that sees what God sees. We want to be a church at City Light Bennington that loves what God loves and wants what God wants and sees uh, and, and desires what God desires. And so this is our endeavor to, to do that. And uh, I want you to pray with me because we're going to be talking about a topic this morning that's heavy, but amazingly freeing. So join with me. Our Father, we come to your word thankful. Its testimony is true. We receive it. It is pure. It's satisfying. It's trustworthy. It's edifying. It changes us. God, grant us in these moments the humility to hear from you as you speak. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, in 2020, there was a, a collection of Mayo Clinic staff, doctors, nurses, that they, they penned an article. And, you know, 2020, a, a year that we have a lot of great memories in, not. Uh, they listed these, these health benefits. Healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, a stronger immune system, improved heart health, improved self-esteem. Sounds amazing, right? I'll take it if there's a pill for that. We'd all take it. Um, all of these come as a result of this morning's subject. All of these are said to increase in a person's life if he or she practices what we will talk about this morning. What is it, you might ask? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. <laughs> a lot of people who don't work out were really relieved just now. Um, Here's the thing, we are, we are constantly offended. We're pretty quick to be offended, um, and, and you can just think in your own life, frustrating co-workers, customers. Um, we've all maybe wrestled with a, a rude neighbor or an inconsiderate friend. Words have been said, attitudes have been had, uh, maybe the rebellion of our, our children, the disrespect, the, uh, the lack of love from our spouse at home. Here's the thing, human relationships bring with them offense because they entail sin. And it doesn't take much for us to think of those people or rehearse those memories or remember those words or that look or that attitude or feel again that sting of betrayal. It can make our blood boil to think about those things we have not yet forgiven. To be honest, a lot of us, it can lead us to 
despair. I, I would venture to guess this morning that uh, many, if not all of us, are nursing bitterness and resentment and anger and grudges against you have it, a small list, a long list of people who we feel have hurt or wronged us. And to be honest, forgiveness, whether it's for a petty everyday grievance or something really, really significant that leaves a wound, it grates against our human nature big time. To be honest, um, we, need, we need to be honest, we, we like to withhold forgiveness we don't just naturally and eagerly dole out forgiveness to everyone and anyone in our lives. And so I want to preach a sermon this morning that I have brilliantly titled, Forgiveness. <laughs> the Word of God speaks of forgiveness so often not only because of how essential and paramount it is to our relationship with Him, but because of how often we will need to exercise it with one another. And our text this morning is a parable. It's a parable told by Jesus, a simple story that reveals a really profound truth about God's kingdom. And fair warning, it's not easy to read. Uh, it's a troubling parable. But here's why it matters. If we don't understand how central forgiveness is to the character and the nature of our Lord, we will fail to embody forgiveness as a church after God's own heart. We need a heart change by the grace of God. And the mark of a true Christian, one of many, is that of extending and receiving forgiveness. So I want you to meet me, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21, as we come upon a question that Peter asks to Jesus. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, I'm going to pause right there, uh, Jesus had just finished describing in context here the patterns of uh, rebuke and uh, repentance and, and reconciliation and restoration that happen in relationships in the body of Christ. And Peter would have heard Jesus teaching this and thought of a popular rabbinic teaching of his time that said to exercise forgiveness three times. Three strikes, you're out. No forgiveness is owed to the offender after that. So I'm sure Peter was thinking, how many times should I be restored to and offer forgiveness to my brother or sister? How many times should I have to forgive them? And I, I would bet Peter thought it was noble. He thought he was really pushing the envelope to request seven times, more than double the Jewish standard. Jesus gives him this answer in verse 22. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In some translations, it even says 70 times 7, which would be 490 times. So the principle, obviously, is if someone offends you 491 times, you do not have to forgive them anymore. That's not true. Not the principle. What Jesus is stressing is the unending nature of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. And he basically says, hey, let me help you get to this. It's not just a numbers game. Let me tell you a story. Let me give you an, an illustration to help you receive this and, and comprehend this. And it starts in verse 23. Here's what Jesus teaches. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So Jesus uses the sum of 10,000 talents. I don't want you to miss this. A talent was the highest type of currency in those days. And 10,000 was likely the highest numerical unit that you could speak of in those days. So speculation is all over the place. But this servant would have somehow owed this king millions and millions of dollars in debt. A lifetime of days wages. Um, as Michael Scott would say, it's really beyond words. It's incalculable. Okay? <laughs> Jesus is driving home the point this servant owed this king a truly massive debt. And here's the key about it it's simply unpayable. It's unpayable. Now, this guy's life was coming to an end as he knew it. Everything, his very family, was being threatened because he had a debt that he could not pay. And I want you to see. What happens in verse 26? The servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Let's just stop for a moment. Wow. In one verse just released him, forgave the debt. It's as good as gone. Let's not look at this just as a, a story. Let's look at it as a person, as a man, and a man's family. He wasn't sold into slavery. His wife was preserved. His precious children were spared. All he had labored to provide and, and possess in his life had been spared. Can you imagine the sweet relief, the lifted burden, the chains gone, the tears of rejoicing, the staggering reality sinking in. I've been forgiven all of it. All of it. All of it. My debt has been totally, completely pardoned. I'm released from everything. I'm free. What a king. City Light, this is the story of the world. And it's our story. We are a really ugly contradiction as human beings. Um, it's very hard for us to think as being, uh, of us as being evil, sinful, um, primarily bad in our nature. The crazy thing about human beings is that they are made in the image of God. And they possess as the crown of God's creation uh, ways of reflecting who he is in um, their beauty and their creativity and their intellect and their emotions. And we have great potential for good, but we also have incredible potential for bad. Uh, we are marred, and the image of God has been broken in us by sin. And we are, from time to time, just rotating a plate of idols false gods that are not the one true God in our life that we bow down to and we live for and we endeavor toward. God is our giver of life and breath, our maker. What do we owe him? Can 
Can I I ask like a group of people in Bennington, Nebraska, what do we owe God? We owe him our worship. We owe him honor. We owe him devotion. We owe him love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We owe him obedience. We owe him holiness. And like you said, we owe him everything. And not only do we refuse him that, we ignore him. We reject God. We offer ourselves to a long list of other gods, and our life is often an endeavor to de-God God. Church, we've sinned against the Alpha and Omega, the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who, by the power of his breath, spoke everything into existence. No one preceded him, no one comes after him. We've sinned against him. And all of us have fallen short of his standard. And the testimony of God's works, word speaks clearly. Our sin and our sinfulness brings us death. Under God's justice, it brings us separation from him. We're cut off from relationship from him. We're cut off from experiencing his love We are forever under his wrath and hell bound. Oh, that we would be humbled before the weight of what we owe God and cannot pay. It is horrific, tragic, and it is self-imposed for a person to go to their grave with sin, debt, and so praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus, God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has shown us a way to be made right with him. He has made a way and he has parted the chasm between us. And his son, his one and only son has come. And when he came to live as a man, an angel announced at his very birth that he will save his people from their sins. And the first declaration made publicly about Jesus was from John the Baptist. Behold, behold, look gaze upon. There he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself said, I came into this world not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many, to buy my people back from the slavery of sin, from the destruction of the evil one, from the consummation of the world. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus came And on his way to the cross, he said, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. It was Jesus who fell under God's wrath where we belong. Have we forgotten this? It was Jesus who fell under God's wrath, his holy wrath, where we belong. Jesus was there. And the good news of the gospel is that God has looked at us and given us what his son deserves. And he's looked at his son and given his son what we deserve. The good news of Jesus is that he paid it all. He paid it all. There is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. The good news of Jesus, as you know the song, is that we owe him everything. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You want to know the heart of God? You want to know what's deep down in the core of who God is? It is 
forgiveness. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Hallelujah. Does anyone in here know that forgiveness? Has anyone in here experienced that forgiveness? Can anyone say amen if they know that forgiveness in their life? Jesus has been so, so, so good to us. Here's the thing. If we don't understand this, if we can't wrap our hearts and our minds around this, if we can't draw near to the cross and look at it and gaze upon it and behold its beauty and its wonder, we will not be able to forgive. There will be no power in us to forgive. And here's the thing. God defines himself in Exodus 34. He says, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Hallelujah. Now allow me to be a huge buzzkill. <laughs> the story that we're reading, this parable, it's about to take a crazy and humiliating turn. That man, you remember that man who was forgiven in an instant 10,000 talents of debt? Well, he's about to turn and do something, and I want you to read it with me starting in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Uh, he threw hands. He went for a chokehold. For something so pithy compared to what he had been forgiven for. He physically assaults his fellow servant. He stands and he watches and he listens to this man take the same posture in the dirt that he took. And implore with the same words that he had to the king just moments ago. And then he personally walks with him and sees him to a prison cell. And locks him up until the debt should be paid. How do you think the king's going to respond to this? I'm glad you asked. Verse 32. <laughs> then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the king delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, a.k.a. never, and here's the most stunning verse. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A simple, straightforward reading of this text tells the story of a God who is merciless to people who choose to be merciless it communicates exactly what it intends. If we have been forgiven by God, who are we to withhold forgiveness toward others? Here's the really hard truth that's in this text. Unforgiveness is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. It's an affront to God. It's an affront to his gospel of amazing 
grace, there is no way around it. Let me just demonstrate to you this. Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he expounds on that prayer a couple verses later. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you need more? Do we need more? Consider Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or the words of Jesus' little brother James. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Can we just let this sink in for a moment? Can we have a holy moment, church? This is a huge statement. Can we just let God's word speak? It reveals to us that forgiveness will be characteristic of our lives as, Christ, as Christians. And our choice to not forgive will expose questions about how genuine our salvation is. Our Lord is telling us an unforgiving spirit has no place in the heart of a forgiven child of God. City Life, a church after God's own heart is a church that forgives. So I want to ask this morning, Christian, do you feel, have you understood, do you comprehend why we forgive? One of my favorite verses in scripture, as if this parable is not enough, comes in the book of Romans. And it's in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Has this reality moved from head to heart? Has it become so real to us that it is actually transformational? Is the gospel and the forgiveness that comes therein, is it a doctrine that we espouse, but we don't live? Is it something that we say on paper, of course I believe that, but the way we would function and live would not declare that that is what we truly believe? I think the Holy Spirit's internal voice is repeating always the same question of the king in Matthew 18, 33. Should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Why do we forgive? Oh, because of God's grace. Additionally, we need to be aware of the enemy. Unforgiveness. Man, is it a part of his weaponry against us. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give what? No opportunity to the devil. The author of Hebrews tells us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. I just want to tell you personally in my own life, I know when I feel bitterness. We all know it. I know when I step into a room with somebody and there's a chip on my shoulder against them. Um, I know that maybe they have said something or done something. Uh, they think it's long gone. I am still rehearsing it, thinking about it in my mind. I'm still holding some kind of grudge, some sort of resentment against them. Right now, you in your life, you can think it might literally be the spouse sitting next to you. Okay, let's just be honest. We can be honest. There is resentment. There is frustration. 
There's someone that you work with. There's somebody that's a, a client, a customer. There are people in your life, and you feel it. You guys know what I'm saying? Like in your stomach, you feel the resentment and the bitterness, and you just do not like that person. And we love to say, I love them. I just don't like them right now. <laughs> we need to actually grow in our understanding of spiritual realities. The enemy loves that. You know what else the enemy loves? The enemy loves the bitterness that becomes toxic in a community like ours that comes as a result of that. You know what else the enemy loves? The enemy loves when we, in our immaturity, decide to let all the ways we feel come out of our mouth. And we start to gossip. And we start to grumble. And we start to complain because we're venting. And we start to ask for prayer because so-and-so did something to us when really the offenses are quite petty. We're going to talk here in a moment about the heavy things. But I just I want us to think just for a second about why we forgive. We forgive because there is not one thing you could name that another person has ever done to you that would even come close to a lifetime of sin that God has forgiven us for. And there is something really significant to be said about that. Christians ought to be the most forgiving people there are. Neil Anderson, an author and a pastor, he says, most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. A bitter root of unforgiveness and anger will divide and destroy a church, and that will come through the diseases of slander. It will come through the diseases of quarreling and grumbling and complaining and gossip. I am so thankful, City Life, that I get to do life with so many of you. And I love our church because I feel like quickness, there's a quickness to forgiveness here. I feel like there's an eagerness to give grace in this church. I feel like I, I can say things, I can make mistakes, and even our own staff team is quick to forgive. I love the safety that I feel in this church family to be broken, to be messy, to be a person who still wrestles with sin and the forgiveness that is often thrown and lavished on me by you. I need you to know your pastors aren't perfect. This church isn't perfect. Oh, how we ought to make plenty of room for forgiveness among us. Amen. (laughs) Praise God for forgiveness. Uh, Why do we forgive? We forgive because we remember God's grace and we curb stomp the evil one, right? But I want to talk about how we forgive. Listen, we're going to have a little moment here. I know that Scott Frost wronged you. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I know that many of you in the room, and forgive me if you're not a Husker fan, and you're like, this is going over my head. Um, many of you, your Saturday was like half ruined, and you're furious, and you're asking the Lord, how many times must I forgive this brother? Okay? <laughs> Um, Scott doesn't know you the players don't know you nor do they care about your opinion nor do they offer any apology to you you don't need to exercise forgiveness in that situation Um, if any of you did not think that Top Gun Maverick was 10 out of 10 I will argue with you to the grave but I don't owe you any forgiveness you've not wronged me I think we just need to have a frank little conversation here that there are many things in our life that are actually our problem more than they are the other person's problem. Uh, There are a lot of really uh, quick offenses that we feel. We are quite an entitled generation of people. 
Um, my goodness, if we could just take a moment to look around the world, we would laugh at ourselves for the things that we take offense to. I think of neighborhood relationships. I, honestly, I think of in the one place where there ought to be forgiveness, just pouring forth in the church. There are often really weird offenses that just sink deep down and there's no room for forgiveness. And it's really silly. Can I just say as your pastor, a lot of things are really ridiculous. I'm just being honest. Um, so we need to actually qualify what is an offense. What is an actual offense? Um, I would not be surprised if many of us have even become comfortable and at home and very familiar with unforgiveness. And can I just name some of the reasons why? Let's just get really honest. Perhaps it's because we can hold something over someone else's head and it gives us a sense of power or control. Um, perhaps it's because of the comparison trap and it just makes us feel better about ourselves that we're not like that other person. Does that sound familiar? Like with Pharisee in the temple? <laughs> Three people understood that. Uh, perhaps, it's, <laughs> perhaps it's always given us something to talk about and it makes us feel more noble in our conversations or our attitudes. Perhaps it keeps us at the center of attention. Um, here's the thing. Forgiveness is a commandment. We know why we ought to forgive. And yet, I just want to acknowledge it's really hard to forgive sometimes. Um, an offense that happens from somebody is something that is done to you that is morally wrong. It's something that directly impacts you. It directly injures you. It directly ruins your reputation. It immediately puts someone in your debt. And I, I do think we have to ask and pray for discernment from the Holy Spirit when something is a legitimate offense or not. I think quite often God will relieve us of all the work of forgiveness that we think we need to do, like immediately, if we would just stop and pray and go, that's actually not an offense that I need to hold on to. But if it is a real offense, and I know many of us are wrestling in this room with that, here's what forgiveness doesn't mean. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you are condoning or tolerating someone's sin. We don't need to be the repentance police, but the scriptures give us a great picture in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If a legit offense has taken place, church, we ought to season it with grace, but we are allowed to confront and appeal and make the offender aware of how their words or their actions were perceived by us. Half the time, while you might expectantly wait for an apology, your brother or sister in Christ has no idea that they owe you one. They don't know or feel that they've sinned against you, and all your silent bitterness and resentment does is it robs them of an opportunity for repentance. It leaves the door wide open for Satan to come in and just wreak havoc in our relationships. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there has to be an immediate reconciliation and trust. Can I just put you at ease? Forgiveness can happen, but it doesn't mean that you open yourself up without any rules or, or boundaries. It doesn't mean that you just subject yourself to continued abuse. It doesn't mean that the relationship has to look exactly the way that maybe it once did. Forgiveness doesn't mean immediate healing and forgetfulness. Like, try to not think about something right now. What do you do? You start thinking about it. It doesn't mean forgetfulness. It's okay to grieve and mourn. Sin is evil. It's ugly. It's painful. I want you to know, my friend, if you're wrestling with unforgiveness right now, God is near to the brokenhearted. 
He wants to draw near to you. He wants to bind up wounds. He wants to heal. He is the good shepherd who restores our soul. He revives us. He can bring inner peace to us. All of that said, Christian, you have to choose to forgive. Here's what forgiveness does mean. It means in your heart to pardon a debt that you feel is owed to you. It means to release bitterness and resentment and grudges and vengeful thoughts. And it does mean to pursue reconciliation and restoration if possible. Here's the key. We cannot use someone else's offenses to justify our own sin. If you feel offended and hurt, I want you to consider the words of Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We have to do our part in forgiveness. Even consider the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12, 18 says to be at peace with all people as long as it depends on you. Forgiveness is often not this big, emotionally charged one-time event. It is a process. And I want you to think right now of forgiving someone and the times in your life where you will be tempted again and again and again to have bitterness and anger toward that person. Forgiveness doesn't mean that those feelings go away. It means every time they come back up, you rejoice. God, thank you for your cross. Thank you that I have forgiven them. Thank you for your grace on my life that I can now extend to this person. Oh God, you are willing to forgive them. How could I not be? Their trespasses against you are far more than mine could, their trespasses against me could ever be. Give me the grace to forgive. And here's what you can trust God will do. You can trust that he will remain in control. You can trust that he sees it all. He will administer justice perfectly. He will discipline and chastise his children perfectly. He will work all things together for the good of those who trust in him as he did beautifully in the story of Joseph where his brothers sold him into slavery and he went through so much heartache and at the end he forgave them. He said God meant this for good. You can rest in him and you can rejoice in the freedom and the release and the personal benefit that forgiveness brings. What a gift forgiveness is to the people of God. I want to close with this. I know it's been heavy this morning, but, but, but so needed. A church after God's own heart is a church that forgives, but it's not just a church that does that because we're supposed to. Many of you right now, you've heard the stories, of, uh, the crazy stories of a, a husband whose pregnant wife gets killed by a drunk driver. Both the mom and the child gone. And he forgives and befriends the incarcerated man. You've heard the story of the person who is persecuted and whose family is murdered. And they choose to forgive. So much so that they have a relationship with the guilty party. We hear and we think about those stories and we think, nonsense. How? How is that even possible? Can I just be a voice that says, Jesus makes that possible. Jesus actually makes that possible in people's lives. Growing as a Christian is understanding the divine resources that are available to us in Christ by faith in him. It's understanding his indwelling spirit is within us, residing in us, making his home in us, and empowering us in such a way that it would be impossible apart from his grace. That's why forgiveness is so counterintuitive. 
That's why forgiveness is so countercultural. That's why forgiveness is such a massive witness to the gospel in the Christian's life. Colossians 3, 12 and 13, we leave you with this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. City Light, this has got to be a place with plenty of forgiveness. I want you to close your eyes if you wouldn't mind, and I'm going to close this in prayer. But I want to read to you, different commentators have done the work to summarize some of the word pictures that the scriptures give us for forgiveness. And I just want to ask us in closing to meditate on these. Here they are. To forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow of offense so high, so far, it can never be found again. To forgive is to take out the garbage of bitterness and dispose of it, leaving the house full of fresh air. To forgive is to loose the anchor of a ship and send it into the open sea. To forgive is to release a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. God, by your grace, through the power of your gospel at the foot of the cross, give us the power of